All right, we're in our eighth week of this. So we've spent eight weeks in Revelation, and we've made it halfway through chapter two. I told you when we started this, this is going to be a long journey. Um, but there's a lot that Jesus is saying to us and to his church, and we're, uh, we've been experiencing a lot of different things. And when we opened all of this up, I told you that as you go through and you look at the bigger picture, and then as we continue, you're going to start to see the picture from a much closer view as we get closer and closer to the events that Jesus is actually trying to tell us about. You actually can see that through the churches as well, and how Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus, and then Smyrna and Pergamum last week, and now we're in uh, the church at Thyra. Thyra. Um, this is actually the longest address that Jesus makes to his church, um, but it's kind of unique um, where we've already kind of talked about this with the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia that we'll talk about in a couple weeks. Jesus doesn't hold anything against them. Those are the only two of the seven that he doesn't hold anything against. Thyatira is the longest address that Jesus has for a church. But the way that Jesus addresses this church is actually addressing an individual spirit and then warning the church about the spirit. And so it's a little bit different than the rest of them where he comes in and he says, I know this about you, I hold this against you, and I will come and do this if you don't repent. He actually addresses Jezebel in this and just says, this is what I'm going to do to her. Now you need to pay attention. Remember last week I told you that Jesus is basically coming in and saying, you don't want this smoke. You, you don't want to go down this road because like where we know what grace is and the grace is sufficient for us, where, he, where we are weak, he is strong, like we know all of those things. But when this time comes, tolerance is not going to be something that he's going to have for it anymore. And so that's why grace is so important now because he's allowing these things to take place, but he's warning us all along the way. That as these things are taking place, church, you can't let them take place amongst you. When you do find yourself falling victim to these sins, you have to repent of them quickly. It's why at the end of every message that I ever teach in this place, repentance is necessity at the end of any time we approach God's word. If we are unrepentant in any moment of our, of our time, it leads us down a path of unrepentance. Once you say, well, I don't have to ask for forgiveness of that, then you start to believe you have to ask for forgiveness for nothing. And you've got a big problem. And so when Jesus addresses the church at Thyatira, it is a little bit different, but it is the same mode and model. Like he even says in this, and we'll get into it in just a second, that I gave her the opportunity to repent and she was unwilling. And the unwillingness of so many is what is killing so many. We're not... But a lot of people in the church are not against believing that they have sin in their life that they need to repent of, but it's just the idea that I have to continue to do that on a daily basis that people have a problem with. Well, God's grace covers me. Well, we, we kind of addressed that last week with the way that the church in Pergamum was believing. The Nicolaitan belief was, was that because Jesus has died, the sting of death is no longer effective anymore. And it doesn't matter what I do. And it's bull. It's a lie straight from the gates of hell to keep you in hell. To keep you enslaved to that sin that you're walking in. And we talked last week about how it goes so deep that 
that Jesus looks at his church and looks at the gathering of people together and says, if you're even allowing yourself to tolerate it, you're participating in it. And that's, that's a scary thought because church accountability is not something that people like. Nobody wants to be held accountable for things. None of us do. If you, if you sit and say that you do, you're lying. We make excuses constantly. When, when we're in our jobs and we do something wrong, we're going to make excuses for why we had to do it that way. Instead of just saying, okay, I was wrong, I can correct this. And moving on, we do the same thing in the church. So as Jesus is addressing the next church, it, it's kind of a deepening of what he just talked about with the church at Pergamum that we looked at last week. So let's go to Revelation 2, starting verse 18, and it's going to go all the way through verse 29 of Revelation 2. And this is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, Right, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burdens on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will, to the end, make sure we see that part, to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so let's jump back just to the first two verses of this where Jesus opens up, as he does in a unique way, addressing his church. And he says in verse 18, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So Thyatira is situated between Pergamum and Sardis. And it's not ironic if you remember the map that we looked at previous when we got into this how these kind of circle around and make their way around so as Jesus is addressing he's addressing them in order of geographical location and so Thyatira is kind of off the beaten path it's not one that's on a main thoroughfare that goes between the cities so it's not one that's as widely traveled as most of the other cities so you didn't have a huge mix of people it was very generalized and very localized to the people of that area. And so as people were traveling, you'd have to kind of get off the beaten path to get there, and you were going there for a very specific purpose. Now, when you get in to what's going on here, it is similar to what we've seen with the other churches, a lot of political idolatry. There's a lot of, uh, of your Greek gods that are still very prevalent in the church here. The primary one that comes up is actually Apollos. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, Apollos is the sun god. 
So it makes it pretty easy to understand why it is that Jesus would address this church the way that he does. So if, you, if you've seen the image of Apollos before, I'll, I'll show you a little picture of one here. This is the image of Apollos. So when Jesus is addressing his church, as usual, he has a purpose behind it because they would be worshiping this image. And Jesus told them what? I am the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. So there's your Son God and the image and the reason why. It's, it's funny because we constantly have Jesus not tiptoeing around the problem like the church likes to do. You know what I mean? Like you identify something, you go, well, if we'll just give them space. Jesus like, absolutely not. I'm facing just blow this right up. You want to worship this idiot right here? I am, and my eyes are like blazing fire, not the whole image, and I've got more power in my eyes than that fool does in his entire being. He's not the God you need to be worshiping. So he just immediately addresses it, and he's telling his church, if you want to fall into this, this is what's going to happen. Because we've seen this image in Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus tell, where John tells us what Jesus looked like and what it did to John when he saw Jesus. What did he do? It said that he fell down as if he were dead. Why? Because that's a powerful image to look upon and stand there and go, just, just say like we do now. Wow, that's pretty cool. Let's take a picture of it. it it's, it's an image of authority and power, and, and Jesus just immediately kind of cuts through the bull crap, let's just put it like it is, and says, you think this is the God of the Son? I am the Son of God, the only God. Whose eyes are like blazing fire. I've got more authority than this person ever could have. Stop worshiping him. So he addresses his church very uh, authoritatively, if you would put it that way. Now we also know about the area that we, we actually know somebody from this area, from, from the book of Acts. Lydia is from this area. Lydia appears in Acts chapter 16. And I'll take you back there. It says, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. His name was Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Well, this is a, a very textile industry. Purple cloth is linen that is made for what we know as royalty in Scripture. So she was a fine linens dealer that traveled. She heard the gospel. So guess where the church probably started in Thyatira with Lydia? And so Jesus is addressing this same church, but they've got a problem because there is someone who is throwing out some teachings that are beyond what we see the gospel representation of God being for us. Let's not overcomplicate this because we, we, do, we do have a tendency in the church to try to make this something so educated that people can't grasp it. And it's not the case. The gospel is very simple. We just sang it just a few minutes ago. You came and then you died and then you rose again for me. The, the, only, the only thing that when we articulate that gospel that changes is, is that the Holy Spirit carries it through a vessel like me. It's not my words that do anything to change your heart or that changes my own heart when I'm speaking. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. So when you hear the word and the word captivates you and it causes you, even in some instances, to feel like you got, you're panicking because you're like, 
Think about what happened in Acts when the gospel was presented. It said that they were cut to the core and their response was this. What must we do with this word? It's going, all, it, all the word is doing is invoking a response in you. And you can't help it. It, it has nothing to do with my authority or your authority. It's strictly the gospel going forward. And what I just shared of the gospel, that's it. Period. We've created other things and made programs in churches and made it about your attendance every other, you know, three days here, there, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, check off the box. Did you pray this morning? Have you read the Bible today? Have you done this? Have you done that? Are you checking on your brothers and sisters? Or is everybody okay? Like, that was exhausting just saying all that. It's not about all those things. Those just become outpourings of the spirit that's been put in you and the gifts that you have. So when Jesus is addressing his people, they got so caught up in all the other stuff that when they sat and they really thought about it, like some of us do, then, man, this grace is just, it has to continue to cover me. And they fell victim to the same thing that Pergamum did. Well, it covers me, so the, de the sting of death is no more. I can just go on and do whatever I want to do. So Jesus is addressing his church saying, no, you can't. You have to continue to stay in my grace and in my will. And there's a truth behind that. The truth of the gospel has always been simple. Jesus came. Jesus walked the earth for roughly 33 years. He died a sinner's death without sinning. The death that you and I are warranted because of the life that we live, he died it. And then he rose again three days later. And then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he still sits today advocating for you until God tells him it's time to go get them. So we're living in that period where we see warnings that he writes through John's pen to the church. And we have to ask ourselves some questions. We have to ask ourselves why is it that this church that started off like this and Jesus commends in just a minute for their growing faith. If you look at Revelation 2.19, he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Jesus addresses them with authority and then he comes back and he commends them for what they're doing right. And when he commends them for what they're doing right, this is the first church that we've seen that apparently is continuing in the faith that they had and proclaimed at first. So we've had it where we've seen that they lost their first love in one church, that one was so severely persecuted that Jesus just bypassed all of this and just went to straight comforting them. Then we've got one that just, they went off the rails because they were believing all kinds of crazy stuff. And he wanted them to repent and get back to what they did at first. But this church has their deeds known. He knows their love. He knows their faith, their service, and their perseverance. And that they're doing more now than they did at first. So what is Jesus actually saying? Let's put it in some simple terms here. He can see and know that you're growing in your relationship. So there's a difference between what the church has called the little functions of doing church and what Jesus just said, I see your love, I see your faith, I see your perseverance. And remember what we said last week, nobody else may see these things. Well, Michael, our faith is supposed to be lived out. You're right, but you go through some private hells too, don't you? And he sees every bit of it when you choose to remain faithful. 
He sees that you're growing in your faith and in your relationship with him. He notices all of that stuff where Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus and how, they, how well they held up at the beginning. He reminded them, but you lost your first love. Why? Because it became about making sure that we kept up appearances. We're going to keep doing the right things and saying the right things around the right people. But man, I'm dead inside. And that was his warning to the church at Ephesus. He told them, like, you've got to get back to your first love. Like, we just sang about that. That first song we did today, Revival. Take me back to that first moment. Take me back to that place where I met you the first time because I remember what that felt like. And it was crazy, and it was, it was inspiring and spirit-filled, and I didn't care who cared about how stupid I acted and crazy I was about talking about Jesus, but it, it just made sense. And as we grow... Some of that kind of wanes because the emotions of things leave. But apparently this church was on to something because he says, I know that you're growing in the relationship, not because of all of the stuff on the outside, but because I know what's going on inside. So when you see the church at Ephesus had lost their love, he reminds the church at Smyrna about the, them being commended because they continued even in persecution they were willing to die for this faith. They were willing to remain in this faith. And I told you, that's the only church today that still survives. None of the other seven churches exist today, except for that one. So when he gets here, he says, I see that you're continuing to grow faithfully in your love and your faith towards me. The commendation is similar to what we see in Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6. He says that God, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. He will not forget the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. So there's a similar commendation here among the, the church that's written that we know as the Hebrew church. As Jesus is addressing his church in Revelation. And remember, every one of these ends with he who has ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just valid for them, it's valid for us as well. When we talked about the unnoticed faith in Pergamum, Jesus says, Your charity and work in and among the community is proof of your love and faith in me because you have done all these things in my name and for my glory. And now he says the same thing. It's just deepening and deepening and deepening the faith that he sees among his church he says he sees the growing love and faith that is leading you to maturity and church he says that to some of us today he's telling you deep in your spirit that even though things are crazy when you turn to him in humility and say lord i can't figure this out but i need you lord i don't know what the future holds but i know you he notices those things he sees those things and they, they are indicators of your growing love and faith and maturity in him. But as we have seen in many other instances, there are some things that are going on in and among the church. So as he continues his address in verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. He says, You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, 
And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So it matters. It matters a lot. So I want to note something here, and I mentioned this already earlier, but Jesus addresses his church and talks about the punishment of the woman, Jezebel. And it's not so much about the church punishment itself. He just kind of mentions that if you continue to, this is what awaits you. So we know clearly that it's a warning for us, but he's given us the example now, if you're not familiar with who Jezebel is, I'll get into that in just a minute. But he goes on and he does turn this into a positive that I want you to see. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burdens on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So... Jezebel is a figure that appears back in the Old Testament. Jezebel actually um, really threw Israel for a loop. Let's, let's just put it that way. Enticed the Israelites through marriage and illegitimately so to worship Baal, which we know in Scripture, Baal is the chief god of all gods that appear in the Bible outside of the God that we know and trust. So all of this other stuff that you see, when we get to the New Testament and we look at Jesus and Jesus being the central figure and Satan being the central negative uh, figure in the New Testament, you're still looking at the same thing. They just called Baal, Baal. But Baal is just, all Baal is, is a, is a demonic presence sent straight from, from hell, from Satan himself. And so it's just simply to keep people off track to keep people from worshiping the God that, that in a lot of cases, Israel and the Old Testament intended to worship. They thought what they were doing was keeping them in the right track, but they were, it was just off. And you remember, we've talked about that on many occasions, that we can take the word and we can use the word and be just like one word off and it's wrong. And it can throw people for a loop. And it gets done like that all the time. That's why people... Followed the teachings of the Nicolaitans. That's why you have Jezebel reappearing in, in this situation, in the New Testament, in Revelation, seeing what's happening now. So Jezebel is not an actual person, but a spiritual entity that has married itself to the chief leader. The idea here is, I'm not going to say that this is the, the, the truth of the matter, but it appears because of the way this is addressed and how he addresses the... Uh, the church and talks about Jezebel specifically that the angel of the church or the messenger of the church actually got himself called up in this as well. And so that it, it was an even bigger deal. And it could be the reason why the smallest city, the smallest church has the longest address because it's infected the leadership of the church and the community as a whole. And so as that took place in the old Testament and we see it take place here in the new Testament and in revelation, you just you want to know what you're dealing with. You're always, always, always dealing with the enemy, the devil himself, regardless of what the spiritual entity or effect is. And so as, as you get into 
this, the great danger that they're facing, is not just the fact that she's doing what she's doing and they're following along. It, there's, there's a sense and a semblance here similar to what we talked about last week, but there's a tolerance and there's a problem that Jesus has with the church's tolerance of this. So we can't leave that word out. So when you go back to verse 20, he says, I have this against you. Remember, he's addressing the church. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. But Michael, we're supposed to be open door. Let anybody in. Jesus says, you letting this stuff in, you're wrong. Now, I've said it before. There, people walk in the doors all the time. We've had people come into the, the, the life of this house. We have made some extremely poor decisions. I can admit that. And allowed people to speak into situations that they should have never been given the opportunity to. And you know what we had to do? Exactly what this says. We had to repent. As my, myself, as a leader of this church, we've had to repent. Now, it's, it's been years since we've made poor decisions like that. But it's because we had the mindset that, and many of you probably think this way too, anybody can come into this place. Absolutely. But you're going to be faced with a decision every single week. Anybody can walk in the doors of the church, but not everybody is the church when they walk in the doors. And we need to make sure that we understand the distinction between the two because that's the problem that we have right here. Is that he's saying that I'm holding this against you. If Jesus is holding something against the church, what do you think that means in the grand scheme of eternity? If he's telling them at the end of this letter that if you don't repent of this, what, what happens if you don't repent? You are separated. It doesn't matter if you made a decision when you were 10 or not. That's, that's what this says. We've got to stop hanging on to something that happened years ago. We've got to take responsibility and hold accountable ourselves and others. Here's why I say that. Because immediately when we think this way, it immediately becomes a bad thing. There have been conversations that we have had with people in this church that we see going down a path that we know is going to destroy them. And we can have those conversations. And you know what some of them do? They find themselves in a place of repentance, understanding what the goal is. Because my goal, I don't, I don't want to be in the middle of your stuff. How many times have you heard me say that? That's the, that is, you know how much easier it would be if I just said, well, you know, they can deal with it. It's between them and Jesus. I can't, that can't be our position, though. We have to be able to say something with the right understanding of why we're saying it. Because what happens most of the time, when you do come to a point where there's accountability and you say something, it's immediately, well, you, you're, just, you're just being judgmental. It's the first thing you hear in it. And you know what we can say to that? You're right. But the judgment that I'm using is to keep you from hell. I'm trying to keep you out of something that I see is trying to kill you and you just don't see it yet. Those conversations don't always go well. Sometimes they do. And in tears, those people are not repenting to me because it's not me that they've sinned against. They're repenting because they recognize by the power of God's word, I'm wrong. Just like I had to recognize, we made some decisions that affected groups of people. I was wrong. And you know what? The word says I'm still going to have to give an account for it even though I've repented of it. Well, that's not fair. The Word says it is, so it's not my judgment to say if it's fair or not. 
I'm going to have to deal with it at some point. So here's what it's actually saying. This is the easiest way that I could put it. Tolerance of is the same as participation in. You can't just claim ignorance when you know something. You can claim ignorance with me because I don't know, but you can't claim ignorance with him because he already knows. Now, here's what it means. Number one, we have, we have, we've had the tendency to believe that it's easier to have a relationship with God than it is to have a relationship with people. Anybody else ever thought that way? Well, me and God, we're good. Like, I know, but people are hard. Well, God says otherwise in the New Testament pretty consistently that it's actually easier for you to have relationships with people than it is for you to stay in relationship with God, especially if you're trying to do it by yourself. The Bible is full of instances where it simply doesn't work. Sitting in a room with 12 disciples, Jesus has been discipling for three years. There's one in the room that constantly stayed to himself. Guess who it was? It was constantly known that he was kind of the outcast among the other disciples in the room. And he's the one that ends up betraying Jesus. It's the same mentality that we see when we're like, well, my my business is my business. Well, you're right, it is. But for the sake of eternity, you have to be willing to have people in your corner that can be praying with you, that can be walking with you through some of the junk that you're going through on a regular basis. You want to keep sitting there in your own misery? You're killing yourself. I'm killing myself if I don't say something. This is not just pointed at you. It's pointed at me as well. And the the literal translation, if you go back to the old King James Version, where it says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the, the way that it's worded. It says, that thou let alone. You just left it alone. You're not dealing with it at all. Now, what does that have to do with what's going on? This spirit is being infectious in this church. And what God, through Jesus, through John, is saying to his church is, because she's doing what she's doing and you said nothing, you're the problem. We can become the problem when we don't address the problem. Now, you go back and you think about this for a minute, and I, don't, I was reluctant to even use this example, but it's a prime example. Now, they're completely misguided and doing things for the wrong reason, but this is the only time you'll ever hear me say this, but the Pharisees had the right idea. In Luke chapter 11... It says that the chief priests and Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our places and our nations. Now they're plotting against Jesus, so obviously this is not the right stance to take. But they give us an idea that if you turn it the right way, they've got the right understanding about what their intentions were supposed to be. They saw Jesus as a threat to their religion. We're not seeing people as a threat to religion. We're seeing people as a threat to themselves. That they're being led astray by an enemy. And when they're being led astray by an enemy, we need to get together and we need to pray and we need to seek how we can help them not let that happen. And Jesus, through John, in this instance, tells the church that I'm going to be patient with you in this because I'm warning you about it. I'm going to be patient with you in this, but I'm not going to let this go on forever. 
And if you find yourself in a place when Jesus comes back and even us as a church, we're just allowing things to happen. And some of you know that those things are happening and you say nothing. We as a collective are tolerating it. Not just because, well, Michael tolerated that. Well, Michael may not even know about it, but you do and you said nothing. But it affects all of us. And messages like this, you know what it tends to do? It tends to make people walk out that door and never come back. So I don't, I don't, I don't, this is one of those instances where I've told you, God, I really don't like this. And God says, son, I love you and I'm not really concerned about what you like. This is my word. This is the way it has to be because it's better for you that it be this way because when my grace runs out, you want your church to be able to say, when Jesus comes back and he asks the question, is he coming to save me or is he coming to judge me? He's coming to save me because I saw this warning and I was willing to hear and heed this warning. The patience that Jesus has for his church and even this prophetess, it has to be a warning to us. Now we know what her response was. It tells us in the latter part of verse 20 and 21, it says, By her teaching, she misleads my servants to be sexually immoral and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Even though I have given her time to repent of her immorality, she is unwilling. She is unwilling. And Jesus says, fine, you're unwilling. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill all of your children. They're going to be dead. Well, that's, that's wrong. Is it? Do we need that bloodline to continue? It's not my call. It's God's call. I'm not going to go be the one that exacts that judgment. God's exacting that judgment. Now, you see that, and he's warning us about this and saying this is what's going to take place. This is how it's going to happen. Now, I, I told you, that a message like this will, will inevitably hurt and immediately we think, why would we want to know anything going on in anybody's life if we're going to have, if it's going to be used against me? That's, that's what we think in our fallen nature. Why would I tell you anything if you're just going to point the word at it? My hope is, is that we begin to understand and trust that it's not just about me. I just have to be the one that sits here and shows you what the word says. So I can be unpopular for a few days. It'll be okay. It's not, it's not about me being able to see what's going on in your life. It's about you being able to stand clean before him. And when we stop thinking through the lens of our sinful humanity where somebody's judging me. And we start realizing, you know what? Somebody actually cares for my soul. That's ultimately the goal that we have here is to make sure that, that what we're doing, it actually means something. Like this isn't just a place that you go once a week. If we're doing that, close the freaking doors. I don't have to do this. I could podcast this every week and never come here. It's not what it's about. It's about, it's about us grasping a hold of these truths and saying, you know what? For better or worse, even though that guy can be a jerk sometimes, I know he's got my best interest at heart and he's looking out for my soul. And I hope that that's what you get out of this when you hear words like this, how hard this can be sometimes. Jesus is not being hard on his church. Jesus is just telling his church because there's so much love. I can see a tear in his eyes. He's speaking this word. I want you warned because this is coming. And when it comes, there's nothing that you can do about it. And if you continue to tolerate and you continue to allow this to happen among you, you're participating in it by tolerating it. 
And that's, that's what we want to be able to make sure that we're not doing because the intent is not for us in leadership or in the church in general to be about knowing your business. We're not going to sit down and have conversations with you. All right, how'd you sin this week? What happened? All right, you know, you need to repent of that. We'll let the Catholics keep doing that. You can go confess over there. We're, that's not us. This is relational. This isn't functional. Hey, Mike, I'm struggling with this. And I could use some help. I'd absolutely love to be able to help you with that. Here's what the word says. Here's what we're going to do. That's what the church is supposed to be. Who do I call when something's going on in, in my life? Like, that's the question you ask. Who's the first people I call when I've got something spiritual happening? And look, if it's not somebody in the room, we have a problem. <laughs> we, we have a problem. If it's not somebody in the room that we call first, we should... We. I don't know. There's just been, like, I grew up in, in church, and church accountability wasn't talked about. We just didn't. You you talk about somebody being put out of a church, like, what? What is that? And you still, you say that now, and people are still like, we're supposed to welcome everybody in. We're a hospital for the sick. It's partially true. The difference between being a hospital for the sick is, is that there still needs to be doctors, and if you don't take the medicine, why are you in the hospital? You know what I'm saying? The difference in the church is, is that the sick people that come in, when they get well, they become doctors. You don't have to go to school for 14 years to have a doctorate to help others. You become because you believed. And then you, then you turn around and you help others become because they believe. So there is a lot of differences between the two things. And when we start talking about accountability, it's not for the sake of just removing people from our lives. We can do that like unfriending somebody on Facebook. Oh, I don't need that drama. Unfriend. That's not the intention. We're going to walk as far as we can walk, and we're going to pray as hard as we can pray, and we're going to continue to speak words of life into you as long as you will allow us to. But it comes a point when we have to ask the question, why are you still here? You don't want to hear what the word says according to what we believe as a, as a body. Why are you still here? And then when we start to think about that, we don't like it, but it's, it's clear. I showed you the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 last week. It's still valid today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us a model. It says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit along with the power of the Lord Jesus, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Sometimes being separated is the best thing that you can have because it's either go, you're either going to continue to do what you're doing and you're separated from the body or you're going to realize how bad it is to be separated from the body and I need these people. And there's going to be a place of repentance to take place. Does it hurt on both sides? Absolutely. It is, it's it's gut-wrenching to have these conversations with people. It hurts. You think about it not for days, for years. I remember every single person that I've had this conversation with since this church started. And I, my heart breaks every time I think about them. Because they remain in the same spot. But it's not, it's not for my benefit that I do this. It's for the benefit of them that it gets done. Now, some people would look at that and they would point out what 
Paul says prior to this in verses 1 through 3 about a specific issue. And it is correct that there is a specific moral act that he is talking about. But if you continue reading on down, he tells them in verse 11 through 13, Now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, verbal abuser, a drunkard, a swindler. With such men do not even eat. That's why. Like, that's God's word. He says you can't, you can't associate with that. Well, Michael, that's in the word. It's in the world, all over the place. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about you can't have these people in your church. You don't associate closely with them. We've, we've separated church as a, a function of life and not a relationship of people that we belong to now. And we just go around tolerating all kinds of stuff. Because in all honesty, if you sit here today and you ask yourself the question, what do I know about the person sitting right behind me? You probably don't know much of anything. Because you're not, there's no relational efficiency there. We're not, we're not edifying the relational status of things. For some, for some of us, the reason is, I don't need people in my life. I'm kind of like that myself, but we're wrong. You absolutely do need people in your life. I'm an introvert by nature. I want to be left alone at all costs. I, I am, but you know what? I need y'all. I, I need y'all. Not, not for any other reason, but the Bible says that I need people. I need the encouragement of the brothers and the sisters. I need it. With every fiber of my being, I hate needing it, but I need it. Because I would rather sit at home all by my lonesome. But he says we can't do that. But we also have to be very careful about what we do here. And listen to me. I'm just going to, let's, let's just shine a big old flashlight up in here today. If you're one of these and I don't know about it, I pray the word works in you today. Because if you're going to be here, you ain't going to be one of these. Because, the, because it's not, look, it's not because I can't associate with you. It's because the word says that this is killing you and you need to do something about it. That's the reason. And I, as a church, the tolerance of this is our participation in it. And so we have to be able to speak up when things come up. But there's always, always, always an association that Jesus makes when he's given his word. Uh, I, I'm going to skip that next part, Justin, the Revelation 2, 22 and following. Now, when you think about what he says in that part, talking about the, the, the bed of sickness and, and I'm going to hold accountable those who commit adultery, they're going to suffer the tribulation Unless they repent, he goes on. And, and when you think about that for a minute, that bed of sickness and, and, and all the things that go along with that, I'm, I'm, I don't want to leave it to your imagination, but we're talking about adultery here. So a bed of pleasure becomes a bed of sickness. You smelling what I'm stepping in this morning? Because I don't really want to explain it to you with kids in the room. Yeah, if... If you, if you want to know about it later, I'll talk to you about it later. But Paul, Paul also addresses the church at Corinth later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he's talking, specifically about, he's talking specifically about the way that we participate in the Lord's Supper. And so if you've ever been a part of that with me, this is where I get this from. I warn you weeks in advance that the Lord's Supper is coming up. 
The reason is, is because you do not want to find yourself like many people do. They just let their kids just eat the bread and drink the little juice. Oh, it's no harm. It, that says different. Because even though they don't know, you're teaching them something that they should know. Does that make sense? Because unworthy manner is something very simple here, and it gets taken out of context so easily, but it's because we just tolerate some things. This, that's why this is so important to me when we talk about the Lord's Supper, that we don't just, well, we, that's just something that we do. No, it's not, because it says if you're partaking in this instance in the Lord's Supper or tolerating all this other stuff that we've been talking about. If you're partaking and we're partaking with you, you've caused a problem for everybody according to what this says. That's why it is so important that when we get to that point, we need to examine ourselves. Am I in a place of repentance? Am I in a place where I can say, Lord, I am ready to take this? Like it's got to mean more than just some, some silly little ritual that we do periodically. These things are, these things are serious scriptural matters that we walk into. He says, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Then he just say, I'm going to make it a bed of sickness. Says, here's, here's another thing that happens. Keep doing what you're doing. Just go through the motions of church and you wonder why you're sick. You wonder why physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually you're sick. You're going through the motions of things. You're tolerating junk in your own life and then you see somebody else and you go, that's not my problem. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Something that you and I would just take for granted and not make a big deal about it. And Paul's making a pretty big deal about this. And he goes on, he says... He says that many among you are weak and sick and number fallen asleep. He says, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with this world. Remember I told you last week that judgment's going to come and it's going to start in the house of God. He's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to put a defining line where you know who the church is and who ain't. And it's going to come in our society. Now, here's, here's the clear thing. Well, Michael, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm repentant. All right? Here's the last part that Jesus addresses. The only way to show repentance of is to have nothing to do with. The worst thing that we do is we say, well, that's not, that's not me anymore, but I'm going to stay in the filth. You're still tolerating it. You're still participating in it, but I'm not doing it. But you're still treating people who are doing it as if it's okay. Well, they're not Christians. Well, why are you yoked together with them anyway? Why is there such a deep relationship there? Because that's biblically, that's inaccurate too. That, that's another thing that we've come across today. Well, I'm just, we're going to build relationships with people and we're going we're gonna to get as close as we can get. And you know what? Hell's going to rub off on you before heaven rubs off on them. Spencer, can I use you for a second? I'm going to let you stand up in a chair. Will you do that? Come stand up in this chair. This is what that looks like. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get real close to these people, and I'm gonna help them. You help me up in that chair. Pull me up in that chair, Spencer. Which was easier, me to pull him out of that chair or him to pull me into that chair? You ain't gonna relationally cure nobody. It starts with Jesus. That look, the, we're doing that in the church constantly. Well, we're just gonna be friends. We're just gonna see what happens. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. They're going to drag your ass to hell. Yep, I said it. My wife just got up and walked out. I'm telling you. That's what's going to happen. They're going to treat you like a donkey. How about that? That's what's going to happen. And the only stinking thing y'all are going to remember is that I just said that. The only way to show repentance of is to have nothing to do with. Jesus says in verses 24 through 29, he says, I say to the rest of you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned the so-called deep things of Satan, I will place no further burden upon you. You know what that translates? I'm not tolerating this mess. Like It's too important in these people's lives. It's too important in my life. And it's too important in my family's life. I'm not tolerating this stuff. I'm not going to listen to it. That's why I told you last week, I don't turn the news on. I don't care if it's CNN, Fox News. I don't turn any of it on. It matters not. I know how it plays out because he's already written it. You want to keep staying mixed up in that stuff in that world, you go right ahead. It ain't going to do nothing but drive you crazy. I'm not going to tolerate any of it. I'm not going to listen to it. I ain't going to play with it. It ain't worth it. And it's not worth it in your life either. And until we start to realize that and we start to grasp hold of that, we, we are not going to get this right when it comes time for the Lord to return. He says, hold fast to what you have until I come. And to the one who overcomes and continues in my work until the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ears... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I know out of all the words that were just spoken there, you probably want to know most about what this so-called deep wisdom of Satan is, the so-called stuff. So I'll give you a little side note on it. This is is what it looks like. It kind of means, it could mean several things, but basically it's, if you remember back to what the Nicolaitans were doing in the church at Pergamum, and Thyatira is just an extension of that, but deepening that understanding. So when you think about that, that misinformation in the theological background of believing that because Jesus' death has taken the sting of death away, I can do whatever I want to do, the church at Thyatira is taking it a step further, and I'm going to actively participate in whatever I want to because I can use that to save some people. So it's not some like mystical thing, some deep knowledge. It's just taking what the Nicolaitans teach about grace and the sufficiency and saying that no longer does sin matter. I don't have to repent. Not only that, but I'm going to actively participate so that I might win some people. That is biblically inaccurate and deadly. And so that's this deep understanding is because, well, hey, I can eat, drink, and be merry and go on about my business if, if I might save some. Well, if you're saving people that way, here's, here's a new way of thinking on this. What you save them with, you have to keep them with. 
So if you're saving people with sin, you're keeping them in sin. What purpose did it serve to begin with? You've done nothing. You pointed out Jesus, but we're going to keep sinning. You're dead. <laughs> Period. That's all there is to it according to the scripture. But it doesn't end there. Because remember, he always ends with a promise. He tells them that there are several things that will happen. He says that I will give you authority over nations. It's coming. There's coming a time where all the junk that nations have tried to push upon Christians are, are going to be no more. And he says, I'm going to give you authority over nations because you have remained faithful. I, you haven't tolerated this mess amongst the ranks of your church. I'm going to give you authority over nations. And then he goes on and he says, you're going to rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. Now, let me, let me kind of set this up because a lot of, I know a lot of you like strong men in the room are like, that sounds good right there. That's not the purpose. Let's back up a little bit and remember what the purpose is. The purpose now is, is that when this time comes, we're going to have authority. But guess what? This still should break our heart that we get to this place where there's a reason for us to have this authority because people didn't listen. So we've overcome, but they didn't. It still should be heartbreaking. It still should be a place where that authority that we've been given, it's an honor that's bestowed upon us, but it's also something that we realize, man, they had a chance and they didn't take the opportunity. And then he says that we will be given the morning star. And we know from Revelation twenty two sixteen that Jesus is, says, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And so here, here's generally what people would say about that particular statement that Jesus makes. It's actually not what you think it is. So like Jesus is not giving you himself. He's already done that. So when Jesus made his first appearance on earth, he came, died on the cross to save you from your sins, was resurrected three days later, ascended to the Father. The second coming, when he says the morning star, that's where he's given you the eternal authority of the three things that he just mentioned. So when you see the morning star here, he's not, I'm not giving, he's not giving you himself. He's now bestowing upon you the authority that you've earned because you remain faithful. Does that make sense? So now when he says morning star, you get to be with him eternally while everybody else has to remain separated eternally in the second coming. It's only for, only for the one who overcomes and continues in his work. You want to shine like the bright morning star? You want that eternal rest? You want to find that security from all of the turbulence that you're dealing with in life now and what Revelation says we're going to deal with? The only place that you can find it is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And we go back to the same two questions that we ask ourselves at the end of every one of these messages. When he does come back, is he coming back to save me or is he coming back to judge me? Let me pray for you this morning.